You are listening to Why Can't We Have It All, a podcast focused on exploring the missing pieces in our healthcare system. This podcast is sponsored by Bowtie Medical, an innovative healthcare company that offers integrated virtual healthcare designed to keep you in control of your health and what you spend on it while lowering the cost of healthcare for you. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Why Can't We Have It All? I'm your host, Dr. Donish Gary. The COVID-19 pandemic has uh, exposed a gaping hole in our healthcare system. In today's episode, we will examine that gap and how the existing systems of public health as well as the hospital-based system performances have exposed us to that uh, gap. Uh, To help us explore this issue, I have invited uh, Bernard uh, to join the conversation. Uh, Bernard is a first-year medical student at Case Western Reserve University and is very well-versed in this issue. Welcome back to the show, uh, Bernard. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm very excited to be here. I know that uh, we discuss a lot of very important issues in this podcast, and so listening to these podcasts, I've been learning a lot, and to be able to contribute, it's a, it's a great opportunity. Thank you. Awesome. To begin our conversation today, let us begin with the definition of health. Uh, The World Health Organization defines health as a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. Um, uh, Does that go along with your understanding of health, Bernard? I think it does, but in addition... I think there are a couple of different components to unpack here. Um, What the World Health Organization is stating is that in a pursuit of health, we're not trying to only minimize disease, but there are also these other aspects. When they say complete physical, mental, and social well-being, what that means, I think uh, we definitely have to unpack. If you were to consider physical health, if you compare two 60-year-old persons, one can maybe run half a mile before getting exhausted and needing to take a nap. Uh, One person can do a triathlon. I think these are different degrees of physical health that are encapsulated within uh, the possibilities given by this definition. So I think in general, it's a a good definition of health. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what you're saying is correct. You're saying these boxes of... uh, definitions of health, the physical and uh, mental, is not a fixed box. It could grow, it could change, is, is, uh, is elastic, depending on how we handle that. Uh, that is a very good point. But let me also discuss this. Is this health something to be created or protected, or does it exist on its own? It's like, is our health is like a... a a tree and the sun that exists there without we doing anything about it, or at least uh, as a human being, the mother nature does something? Or is uh, something like a car that uh, could be created? Uh, and uh, where does that the issue of health exist in your mind? That's a really good question. And to really answer it, I would say that it almost seems as if health takes both those forms depending on the stage of life. If you consider in childhood, for most of the cases, you're, um, unless you have some issue with genetics, 
your health is kind of given to you as, as taken for granted. Uh, your metabolism is high. You can eat whatever you want. You can be as physically active as you want. You can hang out with, a, when you, with your friends whenever you want. Um, however, as time proceeds, some environmental factors ultimately take their toll, maybe um, throughout childhood and early adulthood and uh, late adulthood. Um, you're like me and you consume a lot of fast food. Well, that catches up to you. You get calcification in your arteries. Things start to wear and tear. So I think initially, during childhood, health is like the sun. It's something that is given to you. But as time progresses, health takes the form of something that needs to be maintained. It is a car that needs its oil changed. Very interesting. So um, as you were saying, we most of us who survive uh, the initial mortality and morbidity associated with uh, uh, early childhood are born or we continue to live with some uh, uh, version of health, both physically and mentally. Uh, but as you mentioned, this uh, gift that are, we are given uh, is not there in the same state uh, forever. Um, so as we go through 80 to 90 years of life, lifespan, uh, at least in this country, then the question becomes how we can take this uh, asset that God or Mother Nature has given us and protect it uh, so we remain in that positive balance of physical, mental, and emotional state of being. Um, th does that uh, kind of make sense to you? That, that does make sense to me. And really, it's a question of who do we owe it to to maintain this well-functioning machine that when we initially received it from God, from Mother Nature— um, who, what res responsibility do we have to maintain that? And when you really consider this definition of health provided by the WHO, um, there's a certain consequence to that definition. Really, health, given the conceptual elasticity of, quote, a complete physical, mental, social well-being, it's really defined in a manner of um, health is really what makes us able to meet the demands of the life that we choose. And so when we say we have a responsibility to maintain this healthy machine that we're given initially by God, by Mother Nature, it's really a responsibility to ourselves, a duty to ourselves, because we choose the way we like, uh, the life that we want to live, and we need to optimize our capacities, our, our complete physical, mental, social well-being in order to meet those demands. So it's certainly a responsibility to ourselves. If we have loved ones, certainly we'd want to spend time with them. It's a responsibility to them. And it's also a responsibility, as you mentioned, to society as a whole, because we are participating members of a society. And in order to participate, we need to be healthy to an extent. Uh, this is actually very nicely ties into the, uh, the next point that it is true that it's the individual's responsibility to protect this asset. But like many other parts of our lives, uh, the, this responsibility accumulates to this level of the society, to the level of the government, and basically the bigger structure and how uh, this health of our nation could be protected. So let me take you through a... a, a piece of discussion. As you know, if we go back to about 150, 40 years ago, uh, when the beginning of the new 
understanding of the health and uh, medicine was being born with the birth of anesthesia, antibiotics, and so forth, uh, we um, uh, basically defined the uh, causes of death as the leading point for us uh, to establish our health systems. Um, so uh, if you go back 150 years ago, what were the, uh, in the ranking order, what were the causes of death at that point? Oh, it was uh, absolutely mostly infectious diseases. So I think the first one was influenza. Right. Infectious diseases were number one, then uh, followed by cardiovascular, then cancer and trauma. So we as a society, uh, we arrived to this conclusion that the best way to reduce the burden of infectious diseases on our society was to create public health uh, because the providing clean water, clean food, and later vaccination, those were the uh, massive a societal infrastructure buildup that would basically reduce the infectious diseases, and it did. Uh, the original, some of the medical centers in the Boston and, uh, and in New York and Baltimore and so forth, they turned into the public health departments. And later on, uh, the Department of Public Health were born into our governance structure. Now they're organized under the county systems. Uh, we have about 3,100 county system, and we fund them through the general taxes for about average of $100 per capita. And that really worked. That uh, had a great uh, return on investment uh, because it eliminated the infectious diseases as the first cause of death in this country. And then that uh, turned our attention to number two, three, and four uh, being cardiovascular cancer and trauma. Uh, as the world went through the World War II, and then after that, as the technology advanced, uh, and mostly through kind of national funding, the funding that came through the National Institute of Health-sponsored uh, uh, research, we discovered the risk factors for the number two and number three, cardiovascular and cancer and trauma. And those led to a set of recommendations that have become a part of our uh, lifestyle or daily lives now, monitoring our cholesterol, the saturated fat on our diet, uh, annual pap smears or mammography for detection of cervical and breast cancer in women or prostate, you know, uh, exam for, uh, for men. And uh, these uh, uh, changes in the uh, lifestyles and protecting basically our health from the number two and number three, and then wearing seat belts uh, in the car to prevent uh, mortality from, uh, from traumas um, actually forced us at the level of the society to create a U.S. task force on preventive diseases. So uh, the connections I try to make here is when we take the health as an individual responsibility, at the societal level, we transfer part of that to the to the society and the governance structure, and therefore we have come up with now the smoking is prohibited, right, in all the public uh, public areas. Um, so the um, question is, this process of identification of the risk factor and mitigation of the risk as a strategy for reducing the mortality and morbidity of the common causes of uh, diseases, common causes of death, 
that is a uh, that is a scientific uh, has scientific and practical societal governmental level and budgetary implications does that make sense oh it absolutely does make sense as you've mentioned um in 2021 in our current age the leading causes of death are things like cardiovascular disease like cancer and in the medical literature in the scientific literature there are um, a catalog of different risk factors that can be identified and minimized of course it would have to take the details of a person's life in order to um, identify and minimize them but as you mentioned cigarette smoking um, uh, cholesterol levels ldl cholesterol levels um, if a person is obese uh, if a person has hypertension, if a person has diabetes mellitus, these are all risk factors that can be identified in a specific individual. And if identified, mitigated then, in terms of diabetes mellitus, certainly helping control blood glucose levels, um, in terms of hypercholesterolemia, uh, making sure that those numbers are uh, nicely measurable and well-controlled, that minimizes the risk of mortality due to some cardiovascular event. The same thing applies, as you've mentioned, to preventing cancer, uh, maintaining a healthy weight, being physically active, avoiding tobacco, um, certain vaccinations against STIs, uh, regular screenings. All of these factors um, can be identified within the details of a person's life and mitigated, therefore, in order to minimize the risk of uh, developing the most um, the most common causes of death. So I think one thing that needs to be mentioned, though, um, in, say, 1921, where infectious diseases were a real threat and have since been minimized since uh, the advent of public health systems, um, identifying where the sources of infection were and minimizing the risk for people as a society, um, that is doable that is possible through public health means but in this case all these risk factors hypertension hypercholesterolemia tobacco smoking um, although you can prevent tobacco smoking within a public place there is this large debate between security versus freedom with regards to a person's specific lifestyle so in in large can we implement public health initiatives to say, en masse manage people's cholesterols? I don't think so because this country was founded on certain principles that allow people to, to a great extent, live the life that they want. So in that case, given these facts, it seems that public health doesn't really have the jurisdiction necessary to be able to address the factors that ultimately give rise to this uh, prevalence of cardiovascular disease. That's a, that's a great point, but hold on to that thought uh, because uh, we'll come back to that in a, in a moment. So through that process over the past 150 years or so, again, on one hand, we build the public health system and the other basically a spectrum of the health needs, we build this uh, rather advanced and very expensive healthcare system that we call it, the, uh, erroneously, we call it the healthcare system that is really uh, uh, applied and provided to the to the society through 5,000 hospitals. And uh, they're really into the sick care business. Uh, so uh, we have, again, some of the best hospitals in the world, but we all know 
that we go to those places after uh, we have developed the diseases, after we have developed the cardiovascular disease, after we have developed the uh, diabetes, or after you know we have become obese and all other conditions, uh, and uh, and then they're doing a very good job and uh, to do the transplantation, do the chemotherapy for cancer, or putting an stent in your heart, or do a heart transplant, and all this stuff uh, that we do uh, very nicely and frankly very expensively. But this 5,000 uh, hospital-based system in the United States that we spend an average $10,000 per capita, uh, I would argue that has not produced the same level of return on investment as the public health did. Again, public health, we are spending $100 per capita, has eliminated the infectious diseases as the number one cause of death. Then we are spending $10,000 per, $10, per capita on the sick care system, and we continue to uh, see the growth of the chronic conditions and so forth. So uh, let me pause here uh, and uh, ask you, you're a medical student, a very good one, uh, by the way, do you think that the training that currently goes on in the, the medical school, is it preparing you to be a secure specialist, uh, that you identify the diseases after their basically symptoms have been manifested and treat them successfully, or a, a guardian of the health? of the individuals? Well, to be completely honest, <clears throat> I would say that in my medical training, uh, we are taught to recognize diseases after they have already manifested. In fact, we were taught that uh, if a person doesn't really have a chief complaint, there's not really a reason to talk to that person. So there's this, it's almost as if there's this requirement to talk to a medical professional and that requirement is you need to be experiencing some symptoms. So necessarily, uh, if you're talking to a medical professional and it's you know the usual modus operandi of the medical system, you're already um, experiencing something that has gone wrong. It's not a it's not a fact of you need to get your oil changed, but rather something bad has already happened because you haven't gotten your oil changed. Uh, certainly, that's a I think that's a an illuminating analogy um you know in the case of car accidents for example let's let's equate health to a well-functioning car you want to keep the car well uh, driving well on the road you don't want them to get the engine for example to get totaled in an accident because that's oftentimes you can't even save the engine you have to replace the entire thing in the same sense um with health you want to intervene early you want to make sure things stay healthy before anything goes wrong. Because if something goes wrong, uh, it could be major, could be very expensive, as you noted. Certainly we're taught to be able to handle the situations when it does go wrong, but it is always going to be less expensive and more cost efficient, more return on an investment to intervene early and maintain health before it goes wrong. So this is where I think the COVID as a health crisis really uh, exposed us to this gap that uh, in content uh, we are discussing. That, as you know, uh, again, if we divide this spectrum of the health needs, on one end, uh, when the COVID hit, the public health uh, infrastructure helped us to understand we are in a pandemic. 
Uh, they gave us orders on how basically wear masks and keep social distancing and other orders. Uh, but uh, they were uh, somehow unable to do the testing and, uh, and some other help we needed in the beginning. Uh, just they're not in that, uh, uh, in terms of infrastructure and funding, they didn't have the resources. At the other end of the spectrum were the hospitals where we touched upon this last time in the last episode where they were overwhelmed with the sick care part of the COVID. And uh, last podcast, we read an email from one the CEO of one of the leading uh, healthcare organization, one of the leading hospitals here saying that we do do the testing for COVID, but we do it only if you're sick and we are going to admit you. If you wanna do the testing to find out whether you were exposed and so forth, you need to go somewhere else. So this gap between basically the public health and the sick care where the majority of us live, where we wanted to know whether we are basically, uh, we were exposed, whether we had COVID, whether we could uh, go to you know, visit our uh, loved one and so forth. Uh, this is the gap uh, that exists in regard to the health. So if I am drinking the clean water and I do my vaccination as uh, public health recommends, and I know I have access to a hospital uh, when I get sick, you know, if I need chemotherapy or transplantation and so forth. The question really I'd like to address is in the middle in between uh, that I don't want to be sick 30 years from now or whenever. Uh, uh, I want to remain healthy during my 80 and 90 years of life. I don't want to become obese. I don't want to develop diabetes. I don't want to develop cardiovascular diseases. Where and what agency uh, uh, is in charge of helping me uh, to protect my health and guard my, uh, protect my health and guard my health uh, that I can go and with certain level of assurance, scientific, you know, personal trust and advisory role and so forth, so I know with the uh, high level of assurance again, number one, I won't uh, develop cancer or I will reduce the risk of developing cancer. I won't develop cardiovascular disease. But what COVID again showed us that I won't have chronic conditions that if God forbid the next pandemic comes in, I would not basically be exposed to a high mortality. As you know, the COVID the mortality from COVID is was not just being exposed to the virus. Those people who suffered the most or lost their lives are people who had some level of chronic condition. So that is the gap I think COVID has exposed to us. And I'd like to address, going back to the beginning of our conversation, whose job it is to protect, guard our health at the, at the societal level. Uh, if you will, because you mentioned it very elegantly. It is our job, it is our responsibility. Uh, but if you wanna address this at the societal level, the same way we did with the public health or the hospital system, uh, who is there? Who is that health, uh, health guardian? I think if you were to take a person off the sidewalk and you were to ask them a conceptual level, they might answer somebody like a doctor. However, as you noted, uh, as you just noted, um, the medical industry is becoming increasingly hospitalized um, in terms of compensation. Everything kind of works out to contribute to this hospital-centered medical system. 
And given that most of medicine is structured within hospitals, um, you kind of expect a hospital to be able to minimize those risks. However, as you've also mentioned, um, this COVID era has really exposed the fact that whereas all these resources are being invested into a hospital-centered healthcare system, uh, the hospital-centered model itself is something that's insufficient to deal with anything outside of the bounds of sick care. They can very well, although very expensively, uh, handle any situation after uh, something does go wrong. They have the, the equipment, they have the specialists, they have the education, they have the science, they have the funding. But in terms of maintaining health before something goes wrong, I'm not sure that there exists an institution right now that actually um, has the ability, the incentives, and the expertise to be able to do that. Um, so you agree with the concept that there is a gap uh, between the public health and the hospital system that needs to be filled? Oh, yes. Yes, oh. definitely. So let me then uh, uh, turn our attention to if we were at the basically post-COVID era, we want to look at our healthcare system uh, as an entirely. So let's review, go back again, what we did last uh, century. What are the uh, top causes of death in the U.S. today? Well, right now, cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death, which, of course, makes cardiology the cash cow of all of medicine. Uh -huh. um, number two would be cancer. Um, and What is number three? Unfortunately, number three is medical errors. So wow. <laughs> issues with the, uh, the sick care system itself. So were you surprised to see that number three is the medical errors? Personally, I was surprised because I can tell you as a person, um, I'm in my first year of medical school, um, we go into this profession to, uh, to save people, to help people live longer, healthier, more meaningful lives in the way they deem meaningful. However, when you look at the, the bare facts of the situation and you recognize that's the third leading cause of death is errors by medical professionals. Uh, it, it really adds this cognitive dissonance. It's so the, um, and of course, the, I think COVID showed us that the, and I don't know the rankings at this point, uh, definitely when you have chronic condition, if you have obesity, uh, diabetes, and so forth, now post-COVID era, those become really a cause of increased morbidity or mortality. Uh, if, uh, God forbid, and again, next pandemic hits us. But this whole issue that uh, medical errors or medical harms, because I don't think any physician, any providers, uh, uh, meaning uh, they mean to harm anyone. Uh, as you know, the research shows that these are the results of facing a, a secure system that is overzealous. Uh, we do a lot of unnecessary uh, procedures and tests and surgeries and so forth, and really those are the causes of unnecessary medical harms. Let me take back this gap that has, uh, uh, has basically been exposed to us. What is the agency that uh, should be charged in guarding our health, protecting our health, not only from us becoming uh, uh, you know, developing obesity or diabetes or cardiovascular disease and cancer, also maybe protecting us from 
the uh, the harms of the uh, overutilization of a secure system, um, and whether this concept uh, is asking or is begging for a new business model that there has to be a, a new agency that I like to call them the health guardian uh, agency uh, that needs to be looked upon seriously post-COVID era. Yes, yeah, certainly that agency, that type of agency does not exist in mass. If you consider most of medicine, the hospital-centered medical system, um, the incentives themselves, the financial incentives, the fee-for-service model, I'm sure this, the, we've discussed this at length, but um, that really paints this picture of the, the medical system to be able to be very, very effectively deal with uh, um, somebody's health after, after they become sick. However, if we were to posit what an agency would look like if they were to maintain health, I would say that they need the expertise um, to understand a person's health uh, with medical precision. They need to perhaps have the expertise of medical doctors. Um, at the same time, they need to have the tools of um, maybe not so much focused on what goes wrong um, or what to do after something goes wrong, but rather how to minimize risks, how to maximize physical, mental, social well-being before anything goes wrong. Um, they need the tools to be able to guide a person uh, into making the right decisions. If you agree with the concept that there is a uh, need for a um, health protection agency, the question you're addressing is whose job it is uh, to do basically be that guardian, what type of training that person or those people should have, right? That's the first set of kind of the big questions. The second uh, set of big questions is who should pay for it? Uh, at the, as you know, again, when we went through the, pub, uh, the funding process, the public health $100 per capita is paid uh, through the taxes. The $10,000 per capita for the hospital system is mostly, for most Americans, is paid through the employer-sponsored insurance. Uh, so everyone who gets a job gets uh, insurance, uh, most jobs. Or for the elderly and disabled and so forth, the government through the Medicare and Medicare system. The question is, uh, should we search for an additional agency to put uh, funds forth, basically for this health guardianship? Um, and then the uh, issue of, the, I think, uh, what we're going to call them. You know, one end we call them a public health, the other call we call them a healthcare or sick care, and in the middle way we call them a health guardian uh, system. Going back to that whole risk mitigation system, uh, this probably this health guardian agency is loaded with the uh, health mitigation uh, strategies and models and information and so forth. Absolutely. And um, to go back to your previous question, the fact that there is such creative uh, freedom within a solution, thinking of a solution, what can fill this gap for us? It really answers that, yes, there is an amazing amount of room. There is this gap for um, many different models, potential models of healthcare delivery to blossom up as maybe innovative startup companies and, uh, and fill that, address the need of of keeping people healthy. But one thing in, in terms of expertise I'd, I'd like to bring up, and I think, uh, I think this would actually serve it as a, a good 
example of what um, we're talking about here. The mindset of a physician to be able to intervene after something has go, gone wrong, that's something that is per pervasive throughout the, the healthcare system through you know, most physicians. They are simply taught to think in this manner. They look at a person's health through the lens of sick care, um, understanding the pathophysiology uh, and focusing on the pathophysiology rather than the physiology and keeping that physiology functional. Um, a good example of this is actually my family. Now I'm half Filipino and the fa Filipino side of my family is very medically related. They say, um, if you're Filipino or if you introduce your, uh, yourself as a Filipino person, they, they ask, um, oh, so are you a doctor, nurse or software developer? <laughs> and um, so of course uh, there, are, uh, there are many physicians and nurses in my, in my family. Um, and we also have a huge genetic predisposition to type 2 diabetes. Um, my grandfather had type 2 diabetes. My grandmother had type 2 diabetes. And as it would turn out, um, they had 11 children. The majority, about eight of them, have type 2 diabetes now oh, wow. that they're reaching into their 50s and 60s. Oh, wow. um, this past week, I, I just attended a funeral of my, my uncle. Um, he's Sorry to hear that. It's okay. He was he was a great man. He had uh, his his children. His uh, he left a, a very good legacy. Um, he was a very intelligent man. Um, this was perhaps one of the smartest people I've ever met. He uh, started off as a NASA engineer before going into medicine, and he specialized in in family medicine. So he understood what measures needed to be taken to keep that physiological system to keep physiological health functional. This understanding simply isn't enough. In, in addition to the understanding of the physiological system, you also need tools to be able to uh, minimize those risks, to help people make the right decisions. And if my family of physicians you know, serves, can serve as a case example, um, a case study, for example, uh, medical training simply isn't enough. Right. So what you're absolutely right. Um, again, I'm sorry to hear about your loss. Um, it goes back to, again, go back to the public health. Uh, we knew at the turn of the past century that the water source was the source of the disease and contamination. So we had two strategies. One is every bottle of water, we, or every, there were no bottles, every water we wanted to drink, we boil it, uh, remember? And it still is a very safe concept, right? You boil the water and let it cool, so the boiling kills all the germs and you drink it. That is an individual level of risk mitigation. But what we learned fast, that if we transfer it to the societal level, uh, we it's much, much more uh, cost efficient, right? You can basically provide clean water, and that's why out of that an industry was developed, uh, basically uh, water uh, clarification. There are engineers and the science went behind it and so forth, therefore now you and I have the privilege of opening the tap water and drinking from it in most places. Uh, whereas that privilege doesn't exist in some parts of the world, right? You know, there are parts of the world you don't go and you don't drink from the tap water because it's not safe. Uh, the, what the, the point you're referring to, just having a simple knowledge at the individual level is not sufficient any longer. What we need to do is to transfer or create uh, 
transfer the knowledge and create uh, agencies, uh, whether those agencies are going to be funded by the government or by the employers and so forth, that would not only contain the knowledge but also advance it and come up with the mitigation policies that are effective and efficient, and therefore we can apply them at the largest scale at the societal level. So this begs the next question, which again, I will postpone to the next session is, who's gonna pay for this? Do we have out of the, again, we out of our taxes, out of our paychecks, there's another five, 10% we should cut uh, to uh, pay for this uh, health guardian agencies, or there are potential savings to be made in the existing spectrum of the healthcare that we could save and therefore pay for those uh, health protection uh, functions. Yes. Yeah, I, uh, think, I think those are some excellent questions. It's definitely something that I, I feel fits into this podcast well. And I think that some things that we've said already kind of allude to some, some answers to some of these questions. But as we kind of mentioned multiple times, in, in finding a solution for this uh, gigantic gap between public health and sick care, there's a lot of creative freedom. And so it would be excellent to get a variety of viewpoints, variety of, of answers to these questions. What do people think in general? Uh, I think diversity of thought is a good thing. Thank you. Uh Bernard, this was a fascinating conversation uh, we discussed because the, I think the strength of the argument and discussion is so, uh, so visible there that what COVID has shown us very frankly that there is, a, uh, there is a gap, there is a missing gap between the public health and the hospital-based secure system that needs to be filled uh, for us to move us toward the next level, next version of our healthcare system that would allow us to reduce the, uh, the level of chronic condition, reduces the causes of the, uh, the death, and really uh, mitigation of our health risk to protect this gift that we were given by God or Mother Nature uh, to our 80s and 90s. So with that conclusion, I want to thank you again uh, for participating in this session. Uh, this is your host, Dr. Donish Gary. Until the next session, stay safe and be well. You've been listening to Why Can't We Have It All? The Missing Pieces in Our Healthcare. This podcast is brought to you by Bowtie Medical. Visit us on the web at www.wcwha.com and send any questions and comments to info at wcwha.com.